This morning we have an interesting passage that we come into. And it seems that we always have a passage that, that is some way either problematic or difficult or just leads a, a lot of explaining for parents to do. And, and today is no different for Family Sunday. Let me, let me read it and then we'll, we'll begin to walk through together. Peter writes starting in verse 8 of chapter 5. He says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And then verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And he calls us to worship. He says, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You know, as we come into this passage, I'm acutely aware that there is something that exists in our minds that, that, that creates, in some sense, this, this difficulty of understanding and applying passages like this. And this, this difficulty stems from, really, a lot of what we see in pop culture and TV and in books, in movies, and even, I heard one of my kids ask this morning, how do we recognize bad guys? What do they look like? What, how, do we, how can we tell who's a bad guy and, and who's a good guy? And so they're looking for concrete things they can metric to understand and really begin to build these paradigms of understanding. Now, this is my 36-year-old understanding of what a 7-year-old's asking, but this is kind of what they're doing. They want to understand these constructs. What is bad? What is good? How do I understand them apart? What does this look like? And then in their understanding of bad and good, in a lot of the TV shows they watch, the movies they take in, and these things, there is, there is an element of good and bad in a lot of these movies. And, and good and bad movies, good and bad movies have one thing in common. And so they have, what, some chance that the, the heroine or the hero will lose. There's some question in your mind as you engage in popular media. You're watching a TV show. If you know at the beginning of the show the good guy is going to win and that there's no tension building in the plot, there's no interest in you. There's nothing producing this desire in you to see how, the, how it's going to play out. And so if you know that the, the, the fate of the characters hangs in the balance, it's drawing you in, it's pulling you into the story, and you find yourself captivated, you find yourself engaged because you're wondering... Are they going to make it? Will good overcome evil? Or is evil going to best good? We see the storyline met out. Some of us see it in our our own lives. We see our lives as this cosmic struggle between good and our mother-in-law. We see this cosmic struggle played out between us and our boss. We see this cosmic struggle played out between us and all those around us who are opposed to us. And we summarily label them as bad. We characterize everybody outside of us as bad and this is kind of what we see and so we read scripture through that lens and we come into it and we we see that it's kind of falling in those categories we see good we see bad the problem we have is we over inflate bad and so we come into this and it happens this 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 really seductive way in some sense that we come into this. We don't do it knowingly. We don't do it with our eyes up, with our head engaged, but we do it because we're inviting all these things that we see in culture into this. So we begin to to think in some sense as we see this that there is a chance good may be defeated. Can I tell you, if that's where you're at this morning, that's completely wrong. 
Like if you're reading of scripture or maybe you've not read the whole Bible and so your understanding of this, you're like, I somehow God may pull this thing out, but it doesn't look good. I see Syria, I see Charlotte, I see Minneapolis, I see Detroit, I see Dallas. It does not look good. Can he pull this out? Can he win? Can he accomplish this? Can I tell you the amazing thing in scripture from the beginning in Genesis to the end in Revelation is painting this wonderful picture that God has already won. He's already won. And so what we see in the midst of this and understanding a spiritual warfare that's met out is that Satan's job is not victory because that's not possible, but his job, his role, what he's seeking to do is to, to take as many people with him to lead them astray as he possibly can. And some of you in this room are headed that direction. Some of you in your families, you have people that are headed that direction. You don't know it. You don't see it. You think it's invisible. You think it's fake. And in so believing, he's already winning. So what Peter gives us in this is, in some sense, this amazing split between this is who Satan is, this is our response to him, this is who God is, and this is our response to him. Let's begin with this understanding of who Satan is. Peter calls us to do two things. He has two commands there in the beginning of verse 8. He says, be sober-minded and be watchful. Now, the idea of being sober-minded is something Peter has met out a couple of times already within this book, and so you can write down and look it up later in 1.13 and 4.7, 1 Peter 1.13 and, and verses, uh, verse 7 of chapter 4, he used the idea of being sober-minded. As we sit here in this room, many of you, as you hear that and just begin to think of what that means to be sober-minded, your immediate response is, I don't drink. Alcohol has never touched these lips. Not a problem for me, so I've got this. Next word, preacher, please. And so, but we understand, in that understanding, you're completely falling into this misunderstanding of application of what he's describing and what it is to be sober-minded. You don't have to be an alcoholic to struggle with being sober-minded. You don't have to be an alcoholic to be distracted. You don't have to be a drug addict to have things clouding your vision. All things can make it into that category. For some of you, the reason you are struggling with being sober-minded this morning is your family. Your family. You've allowed family to come in and to take such a, a paramount importance in your life. It is the first thing. Now, you might say, you might articulate that it's God, it's family, it's nation church, or kind of whatever, how you do this. But in reality, for many of us this morning, within the Christian circle, many of us, if we were to be honest, and we were to absolutely be truthful in this, family is the determining factor for every decision we make for many of us. You read Christian blogs, you see tweets, you see all these things. They talk about all the ways we need to pour out protecting family, and it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. But the difficulty comes in when we, when we begin to make family the ultimate thing. See, when you begin to make family the ultimate thing, it's everything in your life is pressing towards family. Everything in your life is looking to exalt family. Everything in your life is looking to protect family. You begin to absolutely take your eyes off of it, and you begin to be inebriated with the pursuit of family. You're not sober-minded. Sober-mindedness can only come from complete focus on God. 
And in this complete focus on God, you're focusing on him, you're asking him internally, what does my life look like? Externally, what would you have me do? And you're constantly coming back to this. God, would you, would you concretize my focus? God, would you help me to be steadfast in your word? God, would you bring this and make this true in my life? And when all of these things are moving in the right direction, when all of your focus and intensity is on him, your family begins to take care of itself. Because one of the outworkings of what it is to have our complete and undivided focus on God is placing family where it should be, work where it should be, fun where it should be, experience with family where they should be. There's so many things that begin to find their way in. And so all that we see in this is this incredibly personalized application. I cannot tell you, I cannot tell you as I stand in here, what is the intoxicating agent in your life? But all of you have one. All of you have some intoxicating agent in your life. You're a student, it's friends, boyfriend, girlfriend, school, success, love of parents, video games. You're kind of growing into this, it becomes work, it becomes just relaxation, freedom, stress relief, outdoors, hunting. All of us have some intoxicating agent in our lives. And the most amazing victory Satan can win in your life is to tell you that you have none. That you're doing okay, that you're just fine, and you don't need to address anything in your life. Can I tell you plainly that we need people in our lives who are loving enough, kind enough to look at us and say, friend, this this is the intoxicating agent in your life. We need those people. We need to be the type of people who can say, I just got to tell you, friend, I'm an alcoholic. I just can't quit drinking. I got to tell you, friend, I'm addicted to television. I got to tell you, friend, I'm addicted to this. I'm addicted to that. I got to tell you, friend, I'm addicted to apathy and laziness, to being left alone, to refusing to engage with the people of the church. We need people who love us enough to say that is not right. It's not how a Christian lives. It's not how a Christian engages. And we need people who love us enough, who come alongside us enough and get in our faces until we're willing to bow ourselves before God and ask him to remove those things from our lives. We need to discover what the intoxicating agents are in our lives. And from that, from this kind of movement of the internal, he moves to a display of the external. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Have you noticed that, that over the course of, of your life, Scripture over and over again calls you to be watchful, to look out? But for many of us, what that looks like is, is what it was for me when I first started driving. I can remember being in Louisiana on I-49, driving north to my grandparents' house, and my dad said, son, are you drunk? And I was like, not that I'm aware of. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that was some good rum cake, but I thought all that stuff cooked out. And he said, because you go to the center line to the side, from the center line to the side, from the center line to the side, and either you're drunk or I'm going to throw up, because I just, it's just, you just, you can't keep doing this. You're going to get pulled over. They're going to ask you to take a breathalyzer. Center line to the side, the center line to the side. No, what I was doing was watching I was watching the road, I was watching in front of me, but I was only doing so about 10 feet in front of the hood of the car. And so I had no perspective as to what was going on around me because my eyes were so focused on just a little bit ahead and a little bit ahead. And as I was doing that, I couldn't, I couldn't keep the car 
from drifting left to drifting right, to drifting left to drifting right. This course of what he calls us to do here in being watchful pulls our eyes up and onto Jesus and away from all the mess in our lives. It's so difficult though, right? Because our lives are pressing, they're immediate. Like you don't feed kids, they starve. You don't go to work, you get fired. You don't pay bills, they take your stuff back. You don't pay your electricity, they turn it off. And so we feel this incredibly immediate stress and difficulty in our lives right now. This is what it is. Am I the only one who feels the immediate stress of like everything's burning down? And God's like, I'm up here, pay attention to me. You're like, but this stuff's on fire now. Like, I feel it. I got no feet left anymore. They're on fire. And you're all up there, look at me. Pay attention to me. Are you kidding me? This is the great lie. This is the terrific lie. We rob our intensity and devotion to God looking up and being watchful of what he desires to do in our lives, of what he's calling us to do, because they're so busy focused on all the things that are burning down around us. And the great lie that the enemy wins you with, and he steals your heart, he robs your affection, and he steals your attention, is that you need to give attention to the immediate at the expense of the eternal. He calls us and he says, we need to be sober-minded, we need to be watchful. We need to be sober-minded, we need to be watchful. And this is why we get into this and we recognize that you have an adversary. Some of you look out there and you say, my adversary is Bob. My adversary is Sue. My adversary is the IRS. My adversary is my employer. But what we look at in scripture, in this understanding, is your adversary, according to Ephesians 6, 12, is not flesh and blood. Your adversary is not flesh and blood. And scripture has this amazing picture. And I want you to understand something here. All of us, every single person in this room, at some point in their lives, if you are a Christian today, at some point in your lives, what your life looked like was captivated in Ephesians 2, 2. And what that says in Ephesians 2, 2 is this, that you used to follow the prince of the power of the air. Your former way of existence, your former way of life before you came to know Jesus was following Satan. Now you look at this and you say, well, that's, that's just really offensive. I was a good person. Absolutely you were. Absolutely you were a good person. And what he's calling you to do is come right back to being a good person. This is the most seductive way he goes after you. You have an adversary who knows your weaknesses. He knows your failures. And he desires to exploit them to call you to walk in the vibrancy of disbelief, to call you to walk in the vibrancy of, of ignorance, of ease. He desires to bring your past and throw it back in your face over and over and over again and ask you to walk in the intoxicating effect of what it was to be lost. This morning we've got to recognize we've got an adversary. That Satan's key distinctive and role in your life is to devour you to leave you absolutely worthless and ineffective for the kingdom of god and the way he's working in your life is different than the way he's working in your spouse's life or your kid's life if you're a lost person 
Satan's primary goal for you is just to, to not allow you to be alerted to anything spiritual. Or in being alerted to something spiritual, to put a spin on it, to put a turn on it, and maybe allow you to think that you are your own God, or, or some other God, or some other manifestation of religion is best. It's easier. It's harder. To put a twist, to put a spin on it, and to call you to walk in the reality of what he's desiring to see you walk over into. See, Satan is excellent at masquerading. He's excellent at inviting you to seek after those things that you would label and anybody would describe as good, but in the pursuit of the good, he's seeking to have you lift up and take the good and make it ultimate. We get into 2 Corinthians 11, and Paul's addressing these who are kind of masquerading as apostles. They're masquerading as disciples of Jesus. And this is what he says. Starting in verse 12, he says, And what am I doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. So he says, look, there are people out there and they're seeking to pass themselves off as followers of Jesus. He says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Look what he says in verse 14. And no wonder... For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. We have this character of Satan, do we not? Character dressed in red, he's got a tail and a pitchfork, and he's always unhappy because his air conditioning doesn't work. This is just kind of what we grew up thinking Satan looks like. And so this character of Satan is obvious. He's obvious, he's, he's easy to see, he's easy to observe, and in some sense he's easy to feed because nobody's ever been afraid of a man wearing a onesie with a tail. And this is kind of what we see in this. But he, masks around, he masquerades as an angel of light. Satan has this way of finding himself into our hearts, into our families, into our relationships, pointing out the flaws in those people around us, she really does talk a lot. Did you ever notice that she chews her food with her mouth open? Who does that? Man, that church is super frustrating. Did they never think to pave their parking lot? I mean, what's the deal with all the mosquitoes? Are they trying to leech us out? Have you ever noticed that the songs that are chosen are just not ones that you care for? Have you ever noticed that the pews are hard, the air hits you just right? Have you ever noticed that the pastor just goes on and on, and he only talks long on the days the Cowboys games are early? Have you ever noticed how all these things work out? It begins to bring up all these things. It begins to play on your temptations, to call you to walk in these things and say, it's not so bad because you know that so-and-so is addicted to this. My marital relationship's not terrible. You know, my brother just got a divorce. I'm not getting a divorce. We're not anywhere near. I didn't steal that much money. It was just this much. I didn't really go about doing the things I thought. I just thought them in my mind. I'm not hurting anybody. It begins to work, begins to drive you towards this sense of rationalizing bad behavior. But I want you to understand something. In his masquerading, 
There's a really clever word that Peter inserts here. He says that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion. Like a lion. Over and again in Scripture, Jesus is referred to as the Lion of Judah. Over and again in Scripture, we give this clear understanding that God is this lion, that he is this lion coming to save, this lion coming to devour the forces of evil. And what we see in Revelation 5.5 is this wonderful picture of what this lion is going to accomplish. It says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. God has conquered, and he has done so by agency agency of his son, not one who is like a lion, but one whose roar is in very real sense a lion. This lion has sought to bring you up. This lion has delivered you from darkness to light. This lion has delivered you from death to life. This lion is worthy to be followed. Satan seeks to draw you in. He seeks to, to have you follow him, and he is only the sick, sad, pathetic, masquerading lion. He is like a lion. He's seeking somebody to devour. Many of us, as we sit here this morning, who have come to know Jesus, you have surrendered your life to him, and you would say that you follow him. Satan desires to have in you a renouncing of faith. His ultimate goal for you, Christian, is that you would renounce your faith, that you would say, this is all false, I do not believe, and to step back. And he's going to do that on the basis of some experience you have or some conflict you have with his word. Can I tell you that one of the unfortunate things is that Satan is an absolute expert at using scripture. You take Jesus out in the midst of the temptation in Matthew 4. He gets him out there, and, and Satan is in some sense using scripture to engage and entice Jesus. So we'll find ourselves, verses come in and say, well, this is good, or this is that, or, or he is seeking to pervert your sense of justice, to pervert your understanding of who God is and his character. He is an expert at being deceitful, and he wants to devour you. And if he can't seek to, to have you completely renounce your faith, then he's going to make you ineffective as a Christian witness. So he's going to put things before you. He's going to have you walk in temptation, walk in open sin, and then every time you are tempted, you desire to confess that sin, to come up out of it, he's going to say, absolutely not. Do you know how embarrassing that would be for your family? Do you know how embarrassing that would be for your wife? Do you know how embarrassing that would be for your husband? Do you know how embarrassing that would be for you? Do you know how embarrassing that would be for this? Oh, you're too far gone. I wouldn't worry about it. It's okay. It's not a big deal. All these things that are eating you away on the inside. All these sins that are, that are creating in you a, a barrier for close fellowship with other believers. He's seeking to erect these things. He's seeking to make them strong, to buttress them. He doesn't want you having fellowship with other Christians. He doesn't want you knowing that they have problems too. He doesn't want you knowing that you have been forgiven. He doesn't want you to be reminded that you were formerly dead but have now been made alive. He doesn't want you to know any of these things. He wants to keep you isolated, alone, afraid, and ashamed. If he can't seek to completely ruin your Christian faith, he can make you ineffective. 
He desires it. When you feel resentment in your heart towards another brother and sister in Christ, Satan desires to keep that there. You should just leave. You should just go to another church. You should just end this relationship. You should just move on. It's too hard. It's too difficult. It's not worth it. In terms of this inward sin that he calls on us to keep on, we recognize that John addressing the same thing in some sense, or rather a a, a help or an aid to this. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, listen to what he says. Listen to this promise. He says, if we confess our sins, say it out loud. You say it to those you're around that are, that are watching out for you, that are safekeeping you, that have made it into your inner circle. Those people you can say, I'm a complete loser and everybody knows it. And they say, you're right. It's okay. We are together. All these people around you that you're able to confess who you really are. This is what he says. If we confess our sins, speaking of God, it says, He is faithful and just to eradicate you and blow you out. To level you. To make you feel how truly worthless you are and what a failure you are. That's what we feel, is it not? I say these things out loud, God's going to be so disappointed in me. I say these things out loud... It's just going to be awful. He's faithful and just, listen to this, to forgive us our sins. You've been forgiven in salvation. You've been united with Jesus. You can be forgiven again. God longs to have intimate fellowship with you. And when sin comes between the two of you, he is calling on you, imploring you, and using his Holy Spirit to produce life in you. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And look what this next promise says. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Does this sound like partial cleansing? Does this sound like partial healing? God's desire for you, friend, is that you would be completely reestablished, completely made clean, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, to return you to the state wherein you came to know him initially. This is what God desires to do. And what Satan longs to do is to have you move against that, refuse to accept that, refuse to walk in light of what God's designs are for you in your life. He can cleanse you from your apathy. He can cleanse you from your addiction. He can cleanse you of your disbelief. Are you willing to confess your sins before him? Look what he calls us to next in verse 9. We know who he is. We know what his devices are. We know his game, his end goal. He calls us and he says, resist him. Now, resistance isn't this idea of passive engagement, whereby you say, look, Satan, I'm going to stay over here. You stay over there. We're going to leave each other alone. You go get the people that are easy, low-hanging fruit, and please, please, please just leave me alone. This is active opposition. But notice that the active opposition is not you off on your own engaging in in this kind of lone ranger spiritual warfare, look what he calls you to. Resist him firm in your faith. Friend, it is God that has established and perseveres your, your faith. It is God that keeps you strong in your faith. And it is in your faith whereby you may resist Satan. Some of you wonder, why do I keep falling? Why do I keep failing? Why do I keep finding myself unable to stand against him? And so a quick check for you of certain spiritual disciplines how does it feel when you read the word? And you're like, I don't read the Bible very often, but I go to church fairly regularly. 
Imagine if you only ate a meal once a week. Would you be hungry? Imagine if you only drank water once a week. Would you be thirsty? And so we recognize that both of those things are just stupid questions and you wish I would quit asking them. Then why in the world do you keep engaging in such boneheaded endeavors of only engaging in spiritual affairs once a week? You want to be firm in your faith? You can't do that if you never open and engage the word. I might even tell you, you can't do that if you have a five-minute devotional every night before you go to bed and, and you wake up with drool in your devotional. Like God is not looking at it and saying, oh yes, by the process of osmosis, this devotional falling asleep on your chest is somehow covering you with my Holy Spirit. In high school, I really thought that could work. It, was, it, it never worked for me. <clears throat> Man, God wants to have a passionate relationship with you. He desires to awaken you, to alert you. And this passionate relationship that he desires to have, to have with you can solidify and make you firm to the place where you can resist Satan. But can I tell you, if you're struggling and you say, I just don't know if this is ever going to be true for me or how this is going to work out for me, we have men and women in this church that would love to stand with you. This is one of the things that church does well, is it matches us with people who don't have the same weaknesses, don't have the same faults as those around us. And in so doing, we find that we are strengthened when we can go to our brother who has a very different struggle than our own and he's building up and he's pouring into us. And then when he struggles, we're over, able to go over and pour into him. None of us are capable of consistently standing on our own and are, in fact, impervious to attack. We need each other. We need each other. And that's a good thing. What may be seen as a sign of weakness in the world is a sign of strength and unity in the church. We absolutely need each other. We need to be building up one another, bearing one another's burdens, and driving one another back to a vibrant, firm relationship in our faith. Look what he calls us to, and this is how we know that. One of the points when Peter goes through and he's wanting to build them up, this church who is suffering, who is encountering difficulty, he wants to build them up, not in this kind of sick, like deal where you see somebody trip and fall and you laugh because it's funny to see grown people hurt themselves, but he's calling us and and asking us to walk through the experience of those around us and recognize that we are not on our own. He says, resist and firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering or being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, what he's not doing in this is saying it's okay to be lazy as a Christian, but what he is calling you to do is to recognize that your experiences aren't markedly different from those around you. Your experiences aren't markedly different. You can find solace in finding camaraderie with your other brothers and sisters in faith in Christ. But you cannot do this if you keep it all inside and never tell anyone. You can't do it if you keep it all inside. Can I tell you consistently what I encounter are people who have reached the kind of the the, the pop-off valve of their lives spiritually and emotionally. And so their lives are out of control and things are going nuts for them and they just can't keep a lid on it anymore. And this is kind of what they say. They say, I just can't keep it all all under wraps anymore. I have no idea how how to do this anymore. So one of the questions I want to ask them is, whoever told you that you had to? Whoever told you that it was all on you? Whoever told you that you had to be perfect and you couldn't share failures with those around you? 
And most of the time, if I were to ask them that question, they say, nobody ever told me that. I always just assumed it to be true because I looked around and all I ever saw were perfect people with no problems or problems significantly less or different than my own. Your problems are not markedly different from those experienced by your brothers and sisters in faith all across the earth. God is making them holy. There are people in process. And God is making you holy. You are a person in process. Now, the interesting thing that Peter does here is he moves from this, this description of Satan and who he is to description of God, who he is, and what we should do on the result of it. Now, the, the ESV kind of changes this word order, so I'm going to teach it a little bit differently than it's laid out in your Bible. Because the Greek actually starts with this idea, the God of all grace. So he's moving from Satan and then immediately bringing in this contrast of who God is. So he has this amazing contrast. He says he is the God of all grace. So in our failures, in our sins, in our disbelief, in our apathy, the God of all grace. So we find this this comparison, Satan who seeks to devour, seeks to lead us astray, who seeks for ruin in our lives, and then it is equally matched in this text with the God of all grace. And we recognize the surpassing goodness of our God, how his grace completely envelops all of the wickedness in our hearts, how his grace completely envelops all of the waywardness in our hearts, how his grace is so incredibly surpassing to all the sin in our lives. God's grace, and he is described here in, in, as being the God of all grace. It is his grace that drew us. It is his grace in 1 Peter 4.10 that has equipped us for service, and it is, his, it is his grace that allows us to be sustained, to persevere over the course of our lives. He is the God of all grace. This is how we know him. He's not the God of all judgment in your lives waiting to smack you again with this colossal cosmic spank stick. He's not the God whose desire is to throw these things back up in your face and say, what an idiot you are. How many times are you going to fail in this way? He is the God of all grace, ready and willing to, to welcome you into his arms. Ready and willing to envelop you in forgiveness once again. Ready and willing to bring cleanliness to your life to remove once again the stain of sin, the stench of guilt, the pang of anxiety. This is who this God is. It's the God who has called us to his eternal glory in Christ. Look at verse 10. He says, and after you have suffered for a little while, this is what he's going to do. He's going to restore, he's going to confirm, he's going to strengthen, and he's going to establish. Now, the way that Peter has written this, the way that Peter has described the course of our lives, our lives, many of us, we encounter periodic or episodic suffering. Suffer a little here, you suffer a little there. But for other, others of us in our lives, and this isn't an exaggeration, for others of us, as you sit here, you reflect over the course of your life, you say, my life is nothing but suffering. My life is nothing but suffering. This is not exaggeration. My life has just been constantly enveloped in suffering. What Peter calls us to recognize, and this is not an easy thing. What Peter calls us to recognize and observe is our lives 
are finite. They're short. Although this pain and difficulty right now seems like it's never going to know an end. It's never going to find its termination. What he calls you to recognize is that you are making decisions that aren't impacting the finite, but are impacting the eternal. He says, even though for a little while now you find yourself suffering, this is what God is going to do. God is going to come in, and the first thing he says he's going to do is God is going to restore. In creation, God made everything perfect and without sin, and humanity rebelled against God, and sin found its way in. And through sin, death, pain, anguish. So what God is doing in our lives is, is this idea of kind of this recreative effect. He is constantly moving to restore you and to, re- to bring you back to a place where you are holy and righteous before him. He's doing this through bringing sin out of your life. He's doing this through the people he has in your life. And over the course of your life, he is making you holy. He is restoring you. And finally, when Christ returns, he will restore you fully. He moves to restore you. He he moves next to confirm you. He wants to point out to you that you are founded upon the, the, not your experiences, not what you see, not what you observe, but you are founded and established on his word. And so he's confirming your faith. He's validating your faith. He is confirming you. And he will confirm you once finally in full. This one, as Peter wrote earlier in his book, this one in, in chapter 1 and verse 8, who you have not seen, this one you don't see now, recognizing that you love him and you believe in him, and this one you have not seen, finally faith will become sight, and he will finally and fully confirm your faith. He is strengthening you. He is strengthening you. And he's doing this in this recognition, in confession of weakness. If we go around like people who are strong and have it all together, then we are lying to ourselves, telling ourselves we have no need for God to come in and strengthen us. And Colossians 1.11 says that God has strengthened us with all power by the grace of his might. That God is strengthening us, that he is producing strength in us. And what he is doing is when we find ourselves weak, we experience the strengthness of God the most. Amen? And that, strengthen, that strengthening will finally and fully be realized at the return of Jesus or our union with him in death. And the last thing he says in here is that he is establishing you. Peter's talk of, of establishing the Christian really goes back to chapter 2, and verses 4 and 5. He says, as you come to him, speaking of Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God's establishing of you, Christian, is not on the weight of your personality. It's not on the heritage of faith from your family. It's not on your interpersonal resolve to follow him. You are established in Jesus. To seek to be established on anything else is to establish yourself, to build your foundation on the shifting sand of experience. He's constantly establishing you in who he is. 
and building you to be something glorious. God is going to restore you. He's going to confirm you. He's going to strengthen you. And he's going to establish you. And this amazing thing, the, the, the structure that Peter uses here, what he calls us to do next is just to worship God on the basis of what he's doing and what he's going to do in our lives. Recognize that we struggle not against flesh and blood. We have an adversary that's seeking to devour us. God is seeking to establish you, to make you strong and firm in your faith, to see, to see you call out to him. And in the midst of all these things, then Peter turns to his audience and he invites them to come and to worship him. And our worship, this is what it sounds like. Verse 11, he says, To him, to him be dominion forever and ever. It's an amazing thing here. Peter takes this phrase that was consistent throughout the Roman Empire, this understanding that the Roman Empire had all dominion, or they would, another translation is the word might. And so Roman could travel relatively unimpeded throughout the Roman Empire because individuals that might oppose Rome were decidedly fearful of the might of the Roman Empire. So now here he writes to this group of Christians who now find themselves fearful of that same might, fearful of the ostracism of their family, fearful of the ostracism of those in their community. So he turns it. This thing which may produce fear in you, which produces fear all over their known world, is fake, is temporary, is trivial in comparison to our great God who has all might, all power, all dominion. And to him be glory forever and ever. And they all said, amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you this morning. God, that you have overcome Satan. The story has been laid out. There is no surprising plot twist or development to produce fear in us. But yet, God, many of us this morning are hesitant to admit, to confess the realities of a spiritual existence outside those things we're able to observe and see and experience. So God, would you give us spiritual eyes this morning? God, would you speak to the heart who has yet to submit themselves to you and call them to walk in the reality of your own son who suffered and died so that they might find union with you, forgiveness for their sins, forgiveness for violating the law of a holy God, that you allowed all their punishment, all their ostracism to fall on your son Jesus. But yet in his death, you've raised him to new life so that we might walk in that new life with him. Father, I pray this morning for my brothers and sisters in this room that are struggling to confess sin, the uncertainty of confession, the vulnerability of it, for them is more terrifying. It is unknown. So they, were, they are afraid to walk in the beauty of forgiveness. So God, would you strengthen them by the power of your spirit this morning? Would you, would you help them to find encouragement from those around them, from your spirit in their lives? 
and you allow them to confess their sins and would you move to cleanse them from all unrighteousness? God, would you unite our hearts together by the power of your spirit this morning as we move into a time of application and response that we would be a people who follow you and, are, and who are consistently and continuously obedient to you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.